Good morning. Good morning to you also online. We are thrilled to have you, privileged to have you. Feel a tremendous responsibility that you've given up this time that we would be helpful and useful to you uh, in your worship, creating environments where you can commune with God, whether (laughs) what we say has any relevance at all, that you can just have those moments where you can be with the Lord. But also we intend that the things that we sing and the things that we say and the messages that we bring also have relevance. I'm Steve Howard, one of the teaching pastors here. It's my privilege to uh, continue the series called Acts Redux, which is kind of a redo of the book of Acts, and I'm going to explain that in just a moment. We're not here so much just to teach you the Bible, as though there's some inherent, you know, uh, blessing in just knowing the Bible stories better. You know, there is, but that's a means to an end, not an end. We're not even here so that you might understand God better. You know, it's important that you understand God better, but again, that's a means to an end, that's not the end. We're here to help you understand what God has in store for your life and, and that there's still relevance in, in what he has to say. And it will make your life different. It will make your life better. And it will also make you more useful and beneficial to others in the world. Uh, it will make your life count, which brings glory to God and also brings tremendous satisfaction to you as well. You know, that's why we spend this time together. Now, we're talking about different catalysts in this series. Uh, Looking at the book of Acts, a catalyst is a change agent. Things that happened in the first century church that changed the church and then went on and changed the world as well. Things that continue to change people's lives and continue to impact the world in which we live. We started out with the Holy Spirit because the first thing that happens in the book of Acts is God sends his Holy Spirit. Well, he sent it in special measure upon the apostles, that's for sure. But he still sends his Holy Spirit. In fact, the Bible says that no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. And wherever God's word goes, his Holy Spirit goes as well. You know, so if you've looked at the Christian faith and said, you know, that's not something I want to be a part of. It's not something I know I could honor. Uh, There are rules and behaviors there that I could never live up to. and, And so I'm out or I'll be at best kind of a fringe member. That's true. You know, in your own power, you could never do that. But he sends his Holy Spirit and he enables what appears to be onerous, what appears to be beyond you to be accomplished through the Holy Spirit to your joy and your fulfillment. And, and um, these behaviors then are a result of his infilling, not your effort to accomplish. And then last week, uh, Pastor Garrett talked about persecution and how persecution is certainly an evil in the world. It's not something that God desires, but it's something that God can use. And he used it in the early church to spread people across the world to bring that message to bear. And it still happens today. Persecution in various places still presents an opportunity for the gospel. Now today we're going to talk about personal suffering or humanitarian suffering, whether it's yours or whether it's somebody else, and what an opportunity that presents for God to go to work, go to work in your life or go to work in the world. And I I thought of a number of ways, and in fact, I spent a lot of time thinking about the introduction to this, and and I thought, just give it up. Let me just tell you some stories uh, of people who have experienced 
uh, the opportunity that suffering presents to make a difference in the lives of others that then made a difference also in their lives. So I have uh, four stories I want to share with you. The first one is about a a United States Navy veteran, uh, Austin Shirley, uh, who had given his life to uh, significant work as a Navy SEAL. In in fact, he had been in some pretty hairy situations, some difficult situations, and he knew that his life mattered. His life mattered to his buddies. I mean, they had each other's back, and he knew that his life mattered to the place where they were uh, eliminating terrorism and and reestablishing normalcy in life. It mattered, and he knew that, and it mattered also on the home front uh, because these terrorists were so busy, you know, dealing with the SEALs that they didn't have time to spread their terror elsewhere in the world. He knew that mattered, but when he finished his career, he came back to the States and he said, life has got to be more than just making an income and accumulating things. You know, I was significant. You know, I don't want to trade that out. And so before he re-entered what would be called normal routine living, he decided that he would do something especially for uh, military veterans. And so he, with his uh, dog here, Archer, uh, he's in a watch cap there hugging his uh, dog and his good friend John, decided that he would start in Jacksonville, Florida, and they would walk, it would take them almost a year, to walk all the way to San Diego. And in that walk, they would just solicit donations, however people might want to give them. They would tell their story and what they're doing uh, to help wounded veterans. And they would just live off of the generosity of people as they walked. It took them nine and a half months. They raised over $62,000. And at the end, he said, I just wanted, uh, I was just attracted to the entire aspect of the thing. I figured it would help me become a better person. And it has forever changed my outlook on life. It was a catalyst for change. You know, he wasn't going to just go through the routine of, of letting life dictate its terms. He was going to make a difference in things that matter. Here's another one, uh, more usual. Chris Hooley uh, showed his 11-year-old daughter uh, a video of people helping homeless people that made them smile and happy. And she was so inspired by it. She said, Daddy, that's what we need to do. He said, well, okay then. And so she began and with her friends to devise ways that they could make homeless people smile. And, and so they would create these events and they would go into the city and, and they would uh, go wherever homeless people would be and, and they discovered more and more in Phoenix, Arizona where that happened to be. And uh, they would just conduct these events to make these people happy at least for a moment. And she established actually a charity event that occurs across Phoenix called Rekindle. And it rekindles hope in the lives of people who have lost all hope. Her father was so proud of her. He said, my whole life had been a go-getter, pretty successful in business. But in the past couple of years, I felt like I was taking more and it wasn't as satisfying as it could be. Who knew that my 11-year-old daughter would teach me a better way? And and this next one is uh, really a powerful story, my favorite of the four. Deputy Andy Connor, uh, he's a a state trooper in the state of Washington and in the Northwest and Uh, He was patrolling a highway where there was a lot of prostitution, and he was kind of on that patrol. He was uh, meant to stop that activity, and so he would constantly arrest young girls and put them in lockup. It just was so demeaning of him and so demeaning of them. He just thought, this isn't helping people. You know, I went into this business because I wanted to help people. He said, there has to be a better way. And so with some friends, he began to develop halfway houses that would uh, shelter these girls, protect these girls from people who were preying on them. 
and, and also uh, retool them and provide opportunity for them to learn vocational talents that they hadn't had before and give them support until they had achieved that. And he says, what a difference it's made in so many lives. And in his life too, was a catalyst. Their suffering was a catalyst for change in his life, but also in the lives of so many girls. Now other patrol uh, officers are doing the same thing. And when they stop a girl and arrest a girl in a situation like that, they say, you know, I have a choice. You don't have to live like this. There's a better way, and we're here to help you find that way. And then finally, Kathy O'Grady, uh, shown here in this picture, her mother died 15 years ago, and her mother was known to her as a generous person. And when you think about, you know, I want to continue the legacy of what my parents have established, I, I want to be generous as well. So I set aside the proceeds from her estate, and I just thought, I'm going to help people with those monies. And, and so every year at Thanksgiving, she would give 20 people... Uh, $50 gift card so that they could have a better Thanksgiving. But that was just the beginning. And then she began to do things like leaving blankets or, or leaving bags of clothes or, or leaving toiletries on park benches so that people who didn't have any means could find that and, and have a better life. She said, I just want people to feel loved. It's interesting that these are almost exceptional stories when in fact they should just be usual. It should be the way that Christians live their lives. The mission of this church is to reach the lost and strengthen the saved, to live bold and courageous lives of Christian witness before a non-believing world. You know, if, if you're lost, I hope that in the course of this time spent with us, whether online or, or in worship, that you come to understand how great is God's love for you and what he has done for you in Christ Jesus. But if you are saved, and I would expect that most of us in here know that story already, then he wants you to live a life that matters, a life that makes a difference, a bold and courageous life of Christian witness before a non-believing world, that those stories that I shared would be commonplace in your life. Yeah, most of you know that as a hobby, you know, I play golf and it's a sport that requires some investment of time and certainly amount of money as well, whether to play or to buy the right equipment. And, and so I, I play with people that are typically successful people. And I was playing with a guy the other day and, and uh, he was complaining about his church and his senior pastor and he thought, you know, Every pastor would like to say he's better than the other guys, so he expected me to join in his criticism. He was complaining that his senior pastor took June and July off to kind of recharge his batteries to read and, and to write, his significant ministry it was, and, and he would have what he called the B team, you know, up on the stage. And, and he said, that just ain't right, Steve. He said, his job is to take care of us. We support him, we pay his salary, and it just ain't right that he isn't here for us. He said, uh, do you agree with me? <clears throat> I was on the tee box at the moment, and I said, let me hit this shot, and then you're going to have to walk this hole with me because this is going to take some time. <laughs> I said, no, I don't agree with you. The church is not the mission. The church is established by God to accomplish the mission. The mission is not us. The mission is people who need Jesus Christ. The people who suffer and who do not yet know how much God loves them. They are the mission. You are not the mission. I'm not the mission. I'm to be strengthened to accomplish the mission. The mission is lost people. And I know this too, that if you're going to make an inroad into that community, 
there's going to have to be an understanding that suffering is a means to share that message in a significant, memorable, life-changing way. It's trite but true that people don't care what you know. They don't care how theologically astute you are. They don't care to hear your theological superior understanding of the world if they don't know that you care. Here's how the Bible puts it in the letter of James. It said, what good is it, brothers or sisters, if you claim to have faith, but you don't have the actions to back it up? Can that faith even save you? Is it, is it accomplishing everything it should for you? Suppose a brother or sister is in need without clothes or even daily food. There's lots of other ways in which people are in need. And if you just say to them, I hope things work out for you, you know, have a great life, be warm, be well fed, but you do nothing about their needs, where's the good in that? In the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. Doesn't matter, doesn't change things, doesn't affect the change that is needed. That's why the catalyst of need whether in your life or in the life of others, is so significant and can be so powerful in being who you ought to be to your benefit, you know, to your joy, but also to the benefit and to the joy of others. Well, we're studying the book of Acts and we're looking at chapter 6, a demonstrated need that occurred in uh, the early church very early on after Jesus was ascended into heaven, after the apostles were given the gift of the Holy Spirit, and after the church began to grow, a problem developed, and it was a problem of human need. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews, Jews who were not of Jewish extraction, Jews who were, uh, I mean Christians who were not of Jewish distraction, Christians who were uh, Gentile in origin, Uh, among them complained against the Hebraic Jews, saying there's favoritism here because we notice your widows are being overlooked and and taken care of, but ours are being overlooked in the distribution of food. It was a matter of fairness and it was a matter of some people hurting. So the twelve recognized the problem and they gathered the disciples together and said it would not be right for us to give up our ministry, uh, the word of God, in order to take care of this physical need waiting on tables. But it still needs to be done. So brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you, we call them deacons, uh, who are known to be full of the Spirit and and are wise. You know, they have God's Spirit indwelling in their heart. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. It's called delegation. Again, it's not the pastor's job. It's not staff's job. It's all of our job to do these things. And he was reminding them of this. Uh, The proposal pleased the whole group, so they chose Stephen, a man of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and also Philip and Prochorus and Nicanor, uh, Timon and Parmenas and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who said, this is significant ministry, and so we're going to lay hands on you. We're going to ask for the importing of the Holy Spirit into you just like he did for us. They laid hands on them. So the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of the priests became obedient even unto the faith. 
So they recognized the need and they organized themselves to meet the need. And because the need was met and because other people were engaged in meeting the need, the church grew and the apostles were able to again focus their work on proclaiming the word of God. Let me just say this business of suffering in life is one of the key factors contributing to disbelief in the world today. One of the key factors. Uh, in fact, Pastor Garrett has done a good job of talking about, you know, how the church is in chaos right now in America. In fact, of the 250,000 Christian churches in America, 200,000 of them are stagnant or in decline. That's 80% of all Christian churches in America. And all you have to do is drive by them and you can just see it in their facilities. You know, they're just not maintaining. They're not vibrant. Their parking lots are not filled. It's not the case here. God is blessing this ministry. It's, it's growing in, in all the wonderful ways and to God be praised. You know, we're just stumbling along trying to do the best we can with our resources. But God is working here and it's, it's to his glory and to his credit. But in our, in our denominational affiliation, which is out of the Reformation, which is out of the Lutheran heritage, uh, it's even worse. It's over 90% of those churches are stagnant or in decline. 4,000 churches in America are closing every year. And every day in America, 3,500 people are walking away from the church and not coming back. We have less than half the churches in America that we had 100 years ago. Less than half the number of churches. Don Johnson um, has written a book, How to Talk to a Skeptic has been in urban ministry in Southern California for the last 25 years. And so he deals with a lot of people, you know, who aren't born and raised in the Christian church. And he's analyzed why people are skeptical about ministry. And he's come up with at least six different reasons. And I'm going to run through them quickly. But you got to know that one of them is because they see suffering in the world. And they don't see anybody doing anything about it. First is religious hypocrisy. They see folks like us going to church, but they don't see us engaged in prayer. They don't see us stop when somebody tells us they have a problem and say, can I pray with you about that? Or what can I do about that? They call that religious hypocrisy. You know, uh, we outwardly show that we're a Christian. We claim to be a Christian. uh, But what happens on Sunday is different than what happens the rest of the week. We don't demonstrate an authenticity of faith. Another one he calls gospel inoculation. You know what inoculation is. It's being infected with a weakened form of the disease you know, so that you don't catch the real thing. You know, like, you know, we have an idea of what the Christian faith is, but it's not the real faith. And, and, and so we never deepen ourselves in true belief. Another is broken relationships with earthly fathers. This kind of amazed me, but uh, he's dealing in an urban situation, and that's been his experience. He said one-third uh, of children in his experience and in, and in his research are being raised by other than a loving, caring uh, role model of the male uh, sex. You know, whether it's their uh, biological father, whether it's another father in their life, one-third of children don't have that. And if you don't have a positive Christian role model in a man in your life, you're less likely to develop a commitment to a heavenly father. In fact, 40% of the babies are being born to single moms in our nation. I'm not judging that. I'm just saying that that has the potential to lead to a problem of faith. And then the cost of discipleship, you know, from the outside looking in, it looks like you guys, you know, have taken on a a big responsibility and I'm not sure I want that in my life. You know, I want to spend more of my time pleasing myself rather than serving, not realizing that that's such a superficial way to live and it doesn't really lead to the, the goal that you want, which is satisfaction in life. 
G.K. Chesterfield once famously said, the Christian faith has not been tried and found wanting. It's been found difficult and left untried. You know, from the outside looking in, it just looks onerous. It's like a person who goes into the pool only up to their knees and says, you know, this water's pretty chilly because they haven't immersed themselves and discovered the refreshment that is intended by immersing yourself in the faith. And then finally, suffering. Can't tell you how many times I've seen people walk away from the faith because they said, if there was a God in heaven, he wouldn't have allowed my wife, my mother to suffer cancer, my child to be killed in a car accident. He wouldn't allow for terrorism to exist in the world or for hatred and disease and all the negative things that I see going on around me. If there was a God, that just wouldn't exist. And so I'm going to walk away from him. It's kind of ironic, really, that they blame God for conditions in the world and reach the conclusion that there must not be a God. I I think there's a more believable scenario, and that would be that the Bible is true and that God is not the cause of evil in the world. Why place that on God? God is is not the problem. God is the solution. Because the Bible tells us where the problem began. In Revelation chapter 12, it said that there was an angel in heaven that was given great responsibility, and, and in his pride, he began to wage war against his creator, against God. And he led a rebellion there. And his rebellion was suppressed. You can read about it in Revelations 12. And he was cast down to earth, fallen angel. His name was Satan. And he was very angry. And he came down and he wanted to reap destruction upon the world. The Bible tells us who's responsible for the problems in the world. And it's not our Heavenly Father. Our Heavenly Father has sent Jesus Christ to bring us out of this sinful, fallen, painful world back home to a place where there is going to be fullness of joy. In fact, the Scriptures teach that there are three enemies that create evil in the world. There is Satan who does his best, but there's also those who are under his influence, the evil in the world, and we see it all the time. People who don't know God, hurting people hurt people, amen? (laughs) You see it all the time. You know, people who don't know the Lord are going to hurt people who do. And then there's even my own sinful flesh, my own sinful decisions that lead to struggle in life. Therein is, is the true problem. James said, when we are tempted, you shouldn't be saying, why is God doing this? You know, why is God allowing evil or doing evil in the world? God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. God is in the saving business. Suffering is used by God to deepen our personal faith. To deepen our personal faith. Handsome looking couple there, huh? That's uh, myself and Carol BK. Before kids. We were at the seminary uh, when that picture was taken. And... Um, We were about to enter into ministry. We were about to study for ministry. And God looked at that couple and he said, these people aren't fit for ministry. They don't have a clue. They are so naive. Just babies. So I have to deepen them a bit. Now you look at us and you say, how blessed we are and how good God has been to us. But his blessing didn't always come in favor. God disciplines those he loves. And he chastened everyone he receives. He, he knew that we need to be deepened. 
And I got to tell you that we've been through some painful things and, and you have too. I don't want you to see that as a negative in your life. It, it, it's not something God wants for anyone, but it's necessary in our life that we might rely on him more completely. So we stayed at the seminary for a while and, and that was hard. We really had to knuckle down and, and uh, work hard to, to get those grades. And then we were assigned our internship. And our internship in my third year was in Minnesota. And uh, Kara was already pregnant with our first child when we went there. But because uh, we were in school and, and then we were on break and we went to visit family and then we went to our internship, it was really hard to keep up with all the prenatal care and, and consistent doctor uh, provision during that pregnancy, during that time. And uh, we didn't know until we got to our internship that Carol was actually carrying twins. Things didn't go well. You know, something wasn't right. And she began to cramp, you know, two months before her delivery date. And um, what had happened was one of, the child, one of the children had died in her womb. And it was creating all kinds of problems with the living child. And that child would have died pretty soon as well had there not been a change. And so the doctors had to do an emergency C-section. And, and during that whole time, it was also discovered that Carol had a malignant cancer. And so here I am doing an internship in a strange place, a long way from family. And I've got my wife in a hospital over here with a malignant cancer. And I've got uh, a baby that I'm holding a funeral for over here. And I've got another baby who's in ICU for a couple of months as well. And you say, how could, how could this possibly be, God? You know, we've given our life to serve you. Why the suffering? You know, you, you can fall into that trap of saying, where is God in this? And how could God care for people who've given their life in this way? And that wasn't the end of it. You know, we, we came out of that and, and yet later suffered another miscarriage. And then later when our second child was born and our first child was two years old, uh, we were in a small little town beginning our ministry, uh, you know, 100 miles from anywhere. And uh, Carol's pregnancy, again, required medical attention. She had a C-section by a doctor in training, that's the best I could say, you know, who did an awful job of that C-section, creating infections in her womb, infections in her body, and she nearly died from, uh, from infections that filled her, her body. She had to be moved to a university hospital 100 miles from home. Say, what in the world is going on? I have two kids. I have a newborn baby here. I've got a two-year-old, and my wife is near death in another hospital. God was deepening that young couple that wasn't prepared to do ministry in a way that would forever change us and make us different people. And, and recently, you know, our, our problems are different today. Uh, she was saying, do you know how much our visa bill is? Are you paying attention to what you're spending here? And, and uh, she says, do you know our balance is down to such and such? And, and, which happens once a month when we get the visa bill. And, uh, and <laughs> I remember vividly, I got to tell you, I remember vividly when I first became a pastor here. And, and the salary was minimal. And... Uh, uh, I remember sitting in the loft. We lived in a house on Claytonsburg Court. And I remember, I just remember this conversation. We were sitting at my desk and she came out and said, we need to talk. She said, I don't have enough money to pay our bills. And uh, we decided, well, how are we going to handle this? You know, I'm certainly not going to go to the church and ask them to pay me more. So I said, well, we'll just, we'll pay partial bills. 
and, and we had that conversation. We remembered that story uh, when we were complaining about our balances down to only a few thousand dollars now. What's the problem here? And I thought, do you remember when we could only pay partial bills? Thinking that'll keep them at bay until we can catch up. And all that time, through all those struggles, through that suffering, God deepened his child. And enabled him to become more than he could have been apart from that. So suffering, while it's not wanted and it's not within God's desire for us, is necessary for many of us who would be too superficial, too arrogant, and too prideful any other way than to realize our need for the help of others and our need for the help of the Lord. So suffering in life is used by God to deepen his Christians. And then ultimately, suffering in the lives of others is a powerful opportunity to demonstrate God's love truly is the tangible physical needs of others grants us an opportunity that we would not otherwise have to demonstrate faith i love that about this church this church is outwardly focused we have three pillars biblically sound you know, we may be progressive and people may think we've lost our mind if they're very traditional because of the way we conduct our service and the way our pastors dress and the ministry that we conduct uh, but we are culturally relevant we want to be that kind of church we want to be biblically sound. We haven't, we haven't departed from the truth of God's word. We're conservative when it comes to the things of God. But we're also outwardly focused. And not just as an organization, but in urging you to live strong and courageous lives of Christian witness before a non-believing world. Because it changes the world and it changes you. Jesus told a story about 5,000 people that... Well, he didn't tell the story. It's actually recorded in all the Gospels, the actual event that occurred when he was teaching. And they were a long way because Jesus was tired of the crowds. His disciples were worn to a frazzle and he said, let's, let's get away for uh, recharging. And so they went to a, a distant place, but the people heard about it, rumors, and, the, and they got there ahead of them. And there was a crowd of 5,000 men, not to mention women and children. And, and there, uh, Jesus taught them. He said, I had compassion on them like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them. And then it became evening and they need to be fed and he said uh, we need to feed these people he said you give them something to eat he said to his disciples you give them something to eat he said Lord look where we are we're in nowheresville and even if we had the opportunity it would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for everybody to have a bite he said have the people sit down gather what you've got five loaves and two fish prayed over it and began to make distribution an important message was shared that day. The size of the task seems overwhelming beyond your ability. Do what you can. I just want to leave you with that thought. When the suffering of the world and the suffering of a situation seems more than you're capable of doing, just do what you can while you can for whoever you can. Almost every Christian charity, every Christian hospital, every Christian institution began on a very small scale. And when God perceived the heart of those who were trying to meet the needs of others, he blessed it, even as he did the disciples in the book of Acts, so that the church began to grow. And others began to realize there's blessing in doing this, just like the four stories of life change that I told you at the beginning of this message. Do what you can while you can for whoever you can. It will make a difference. A father once told his hesitant son, it is the greatest of all mistakes to do nothing because you can only do a little. Do what you can. 
Mother Teresa has a, a famous uh, a little saying about, you know, people are difficult, love them anyway. People won't uh, receive your forgiveness, forgive them anyway. I, I've kind of morphed that uh, in my closing words to just say this to you. It may seem insignificant what you can do, but do what you can. You can say, well, others could do in a few moments what it will take you hours to accomplish. Just do what you can. The size of the problem is so great that your efforts will make little difference. Just an excuse. Do what you can. You are only one voice speaking for a cause that few support. So, do what you can. No one is willing to help. God doesn't say you have to have help. Just do what you can. It has never been done before. Do what you can. And even if you succeed, there's no guarantee that it will last. So, do what you can. Why should you help people that won't even help themselves? Their attitude is not contingent upon your service. Do what you can. There are others who have more time, more money, and more talent than you do. Another excuse. Just do what you can. The needs of others and your need presents opportunity for the Lord and opportunity for you to do what you can. Amen.